Welcome to The Bridge, fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Welcome to The Bridge. We are a show which connects East and West. The U.S. Supreme Court recently struck down and limited federal protection of U.S. wetlands. Meanwhile in China, the River Chief System, a system for increasing the quality of waterways in China, has been extended into the national wetlands. We tackle the wetlands in our modern world. Today with me is Bebe. Hello, Bebe. Hey, Jason. How are you doing? I'm so good. So what inspired... What inspired this topic? Seems like it's like out of nowhere. We're talking about wetlands. Well, there is an inner, it turns out, you know how there's like a day for like this, Earth Day, and there's a day for that. Well, apparently in February, the very beginning of February, there is a an International Wetlands Protection Day. So I thought, well, hmm. I don't know anything about wetlands. This will be a fun opportunity for us to diversify our discussion about environmentalism into a new topic. Well, well, then maybe we should start by definitions, like in case some people don't know what wetlands, like how to... To exactly define it. Um, I looked it up and it would include like marshes or areas like swamp and also bog. Mm. They're different words. Mm. Um, I have it down mm. right here. So they wetlands can take many different forms depending on the local climate, water conditions, mm. landforms and features like swamps are dominated by woody trees or shrubs. And then marshes, mm -hmm. they often have more like grass-like plants. And then there are the bogs, B-O-G-S, mm -hmm. and fens. Have you ever heard of F-E-N-S? Oh, what's that? The, so these are areas that accumulate peat, P-E-A-T, yeah, which peat. are deposits of dead and partly decomposed plant materials mm -hmm. that form organic rich soil. So peat sounds a bit disgusting to us, but it's really good really? for the planet. And I think they trap like carbon um, like mm -hmm. that otherwise would be released to the air, like other kinds of gases. Mm. So the thing about wetlands is like we know more about, you know, when it comes to protecting the environment, we think of trees, mm -hmm. um, rivers, like water, like but wetlands are not magnificent in that way you know mm. what i mean yeah they don't like, get as much hype yeah they don't just hit you with like beauty or power you know when you stand in front of like a huge tall mountain i don't know if you're in, from arkansas you might feel differently about really? that. really why have you oh yeah because that whole area of the united states what we call the south right mm. that they have tons of wetlands it's marshes everywhere and it's a huge part of their their daily life their ecosystem and their surroundings so over in that you know where where they wetlands are mm -hmm. people are hyper aware of them because they're you know we live in beijing so there's no wetlands like immediately in our vicinity that we are keenly aware of unless they're like right. small outgroves of them but in some parts of the world that is the environment in which they live oh um speaking of which this reminds me of a very popular novel mm -hmm. it's called where the crawl Dad's Sing mm. by Delia Owens. Have you heard of I this haven't. book? <clears throat> you haven't heard of the Marsh Girl in this book? <laughs> no. Okay. See, I I have not been reading novels uh, or fiction work for the past few years. Mm. Like very, very seldomly mm. do I read novels these days. But this one took my breath away. Mm. Like it was recommended by my aunt, one of my aunts, and she was like, "Oh my gosh, I can't put this book down, but I don't want to finish it. It was it's so good." Mm. And she like never talks about, you know, books and novels. So I grew curious and I started reading it. Um there are lots and lots of like vocabs in it, like words I don't recognize, words mm -hmm. of nature mm -hmm. and other fancy words, but the plots they're so good. Mm. And the author, um she is a um wildlife scientist mm -hmm. and she works in Africa and other areas of the world and she lives in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. But this book from the plots to the language, um to the emotions and also her uh, respect and awe for nature 
is just superb. Mm-hmm. Like you will love this book, you and your wife and all, all your friends. Mm-hmm. So I recommend this book to everyone. And in this work, you can. I can't wait for the movie. Oh, the movie is good. <laughs> you you will love the movie. I saw the movie. Oh, is there, there a is, movie? I was no, joking. There is a movie. <laughs> and um, so I watched the movie after I finished reading the book because the like usually the books are so much better. And the, the movie is really good, mm-hmm. too. But I would recommend reading mm-hmm. first because. Where are the crawdads <clears throat> Yeah, sing? so crawdads are like these kind of little bugs that live in marshes and, mm-hmm. you know, areas like that. And you can get from the book how, you know, the author, she's part of nature. She's not someone who, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the boss of the land or someone we feel like, mm-hmm. oh, we own this. You know, we are the leader of the whole planet. She's part of nature. Mm-hmm. You know, she grew up in literally on, on the marshes. Um, it's a wonderful book. Mm-hmm. If I have one novel that I can recommend to people, you know, read this one. And you will feel uh, mm. once love of nature too. So anyhow, yes. Well, I recently got Macbeth, and I haven't had a chance to read that. I don't think I have Macbeth? time for novels. <laughs> I, I honestly, you don't will think- have time for this one. It, it, there is a, a crime is involved too. It's like a murder case. So if that, I, do, I don't have time. I mean, if I had time, I would have already read Macbeth by now, which would only take two or three hours. But <laughs> I literally just don't have time. I bought Macbeth thinking, oh, I'll have time to read this, and then I okay. have no time. So anyhow, so can I tell you a little bit about my experience? Because you know, in in the United States, in California where I'm from, the central... Um, so where I'm from in California, what we know as the San Joaquin Valley or the Central Valley, it's the big, gigantic valley. You can see, obviously, when you hmm. look at a topographical map of California in the middle, it's gigantic. That used to all be swamps and marshes and wetlands. But when, you know, European settlers arrived, mm-hmm. they dammed everything up and t- turned it into, mm-hmm. uh, you know, farmland with, with you know, canals and irrigation and so forth. So the entire center of California, probably a plot of land equal to about one third of the total uh, size of California, used to be wetlands and is now farmlands. And so uh, we, you know, we've basically completely changed the topography and the, and the geography of California, mm-hmm. and the ecosystem of California. So I literally grew up in what should have been, you know, uh, wetlands, but is not anymore. It's just mm-hmm. farmlands and cows and, you know, acorns and so forth. Mm-hmm. But I also had, and it, so I've not actually seen wetlands until I came to China. Huh. So recently, as we've talked about a couple of times, you and I have both been to Shiz. Uh, Right. Also known as Tibet. I went to this forest. It was at about 3,700 meters above sea level. It's part of the Himalayas. Mm -hmm. And there was a place called Lulong Valley or Lulong Forest. And I thought, oh, this will be cool. I want to see the forest. And it wasn't really as forest as I imagined, but it was, in fact, a kind of wetland. Mm -hmm. Because we got out of the car and the tour guide is like, okay, go play. And I could barely move. (laughs) I could barely walk very slowly because the altitude. And so Mm -hmm. I had to just pace myself. But as I meandered around in this field that was full of like animals, there were horses there and yaks and all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. I noticed that the ground beneath my feet was like smushy. And I, I, as I was continued on walking around in this huge field, I noticed some parts of the field were just like oozing water. Oh, And like, if you stepped in some places, you would just like sink, you know, like a full foot into the mud and that it was basically this wet ground. And so I had to avoid some places as I was walking around. Eventually we left or whatever. But later I I learned that that is in fact wetlands and that it stays Mm -hmm. wet all of the time. And I'm not sure which category of wetlands Mm -hmm. it is, but I learned that it's critically important to China and that the uh, scientists from China go there to study it because apparently it works really efficiently, much more efficiently than you, as you mentioned, than trees as uh, car carbon capture and also right. purifying nitrogen out of the uh the, the exactly the yes so uh in the documents that i found so wetlands are one of the most important ecosystems in the world although as we mentioned they are they don't look as glorious right as um mm. uh, other we call natural uh, sites but sometimes wetlands are referred to as the kidneys of the earth and also as species gene pools like we don't like to live there but so many other species love living on wetlands 
and they conserve and clean water. Yeah. They maintain biodiversity and also help contain floods and prevent drought. So they kind of like work as a balancing thing. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. when there's too much water, they can hold it. But when it's not enough, right, it contributes to water. Mm -hmm. And uh, other definitions of wetland, they refer to generally a natural or artificial area with stagnant water, mm -hmm. either year round or seasonally and with significant ecological functions. Mm. You know, though we don't like the sound of it, stagnant water, mm. but, <laughs> you know, we are not the only uh, judges of what's good and bad, mm -hmm. right? For other animals, that's what they love as a habitat. Mm. And as you mentioned, wetlands play a crucial role in filtering pollution and nutrient runoff. And it just so happens that, I think it was last week, mm -hmm. so I've been reading the, the book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, by Michael Pollan mm -hmm. with my book club members. And just last mm -hmm. week, we were talking about uh, the amount of uh, nitrogen or a, amount of uh, like chemical fertilizers that's used on mm -hmm. American soil to grow like corn mm -hmm. and soybean. And um, so just a few minutes on that. Did you know that this is on like from page 41? Did you know that after the after World War II, when there were like a lot of um, like ammunition plants or other like chemicals used for making weapons? So all of a sudden they were useless anymore, right? So mm -hmm. huge munitions plant. Mm -hmm. Um, like this huge one in Alabama was switched over to making chemical fertilizer. So basically, the fertilizers mm. um, that were used to plant corn and other, I guess, agriculture products, a lot of them came from things that were used to make explosives um, because there was such a surplus of uh, ammonium nitrate, mm. the principal ingredient in making explosives. Mm. So that's for chemical fertilizer. That's for chemical fertilizers. And then there are pesticides, as we know, right? Do you know how uh, those were made like after uh, the Second World War? I don't know much about chemistry. Okay, so the chemical fertilizer industry, along with that of pesticides, which are based on poison gases developed for the war. Oh, my. So both these were government's effort to convert, basically, its war machine into peacetime purposes. Hmm. So all that uh, chemical fertilizer we've been spraying on like agriculture products, they came from, can you imagine, basically the insides of like bums, other stuff. And so um, one thing that farmers do to make sure that they have enough yield is to mm -hmm. over fertilize their fields. So let's say if, uh, let's say if like one acre, um, wasting basically, um, like corn is really hungry for fossil fuel, mm. uh, like especially hybrid corn. Let's say, for example, uh, I'm reading from page 46. So farmers feed it, feed fertilizers far more than uh, the plants can possibly eat just to be on the safe side. Mm -hmm. So they say that if you need 100 pounds per acre, um, like this particular farmer that the author interviewed, she would put on 200 pounds. Just so, you know, she can he can be sure that they have enough yield. So where does the rest of the synthetic nitrogen go? Right. So some of it evaporates into the air mm -hmm. where it acidifies mm -hmm. the rain and contributes to global warming. And then some seeps down to the water table, contaminate that. And in springtime, that's when nitrogen runoff is at the heaviest and the whole city issues a blue baby alert which warns parents that it's unsafe to give your children water from the tap. Like you have to um, filtrate everything. Wow. And because the nitrates in the water convert to nitrite, which binds to, you know, that thing mm -hmm. in your blood. Hemoglobin. And, yeah. and this compromises uh, the blood's ability to carry oxygen to the brain. So it will do direct damage to our health. So that's why, you know, when we think about wetlands, although its purpose is not like directly clear to us, um, this is one tip. Uh, wetlands play a crucial role in filtering pollution and nitrate runoff. Mm. So that will impact the food that we eat because there's just too much of that fertilizer in the in like farm fields. Wow. Okay. Thank you for listening. <laughs> oh, yeah. Listening to the bridge. You know, I want to come back around because, you know, you mentioned 
it's not one of the flashy parts of environmentalism that we often hear about alongside, you know, keeping our air clean and solar panels and all the stuff that is in the media all the time. But there's another one I just want to touch on for a minute before we get back to the wetlands that's often overlooked as well. It's called mangroves. So throughout the world, there are coastal plant life that ex- that live both on land and in the water and actually prevent the sand from basically rushing off into the sea and prevent like you know basically the the land shelf from collapsing and these are called mangroves where there are these huge elaborate bodies of plant and eco- ecosystems unto themselves that are off the coast of parts of the land shelf all over the world and so a lot of developers come along and they're like oh let's get rid of this and throw some hotels in mm-hmm. which is you know terrible for the environment as well you're like hey we just we, we should have beaches here but because eventually those homes that are built there are hotels will be collapsed into the ocean because those mangroves basically, one, carbon capture, which we all like and we're learning a lot more about as a species, but two, they also protect the land-water barrier. Right. And they, of course, provide homes for all kinds of animals and other plant life. And so us humans, we just go in around the world doing whatever we want. Oftentimes our our arrogance is destroying ourselves. But, you know, back to wetlands, back, back to wetlands. So in the United States, we obviously have states' rights and, you know, our legal system is very complicated. And it's basically local people fighting local people and local people fighting the big government, big government fighting local people. And it's it's an ongoing constant battle. Recently, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of individual developers so that in the state of Washington, some of the places that have been designated as wetlands are no longer designated as wetlands at a federal level, which means that Washingtonian regulators in the Department of Ecology in Washington are going to have a more challenging time preventing the depletion of wetlands to developers' desires and wants because the Supreme Court has said, no, 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 local people want to develop this land. We're just going to let them. And so this is now an ongoing battle uh, with this decision called the Sackett decision, which is essentially taking away half a million acres from federal oversight. So essentially what Washington is doing at a local level, their Washington Department of Ecology, this comes from a, an article called um, Washington Working to Blunt Supreme Court Wetlands Ruling, December 27, 2023. And it took away these half million acres from federal protection. So the local government, the Washingtonian government, the state of Washington, is trying to bring these 450,000 acres back under state control so that they can still prevent developers from using the wetlands for, uh, you know, malls. I see. I and see. so forth. Mm. So basically the state is fighting for the right to preserve wetlands. Like that's Yeah, it. but this is mm. going to be problematic because say, okay, let's say Bebe is a, a billionaire or a, a company with billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars. Sure, And why you not? are the actual owner a lot of a lot of land, mm-hmm. some of which you would like to turn into condos, mm-hmm. but you can't because it's been designated as wetlands. Now that the federal government has said, hey, you can develop this. You may have a short period of time in which you can start to develop it before states' rights come in and try to prevent you from doing so. So there are vested interests for wealthy people who want to develop that land versus ecologists who want to prevent that land from being developed. So it's it's a battle between interests. So why is the federal government giving up the right now? Have I, the billionaire, paid like millions to somebody in the government to do this? <laughs> or or what, why the change? Well... Maybe. Okay, well. Well, it's actually, because it's a legal decision, technically you're not supposed to be able to lobby Supreme Court justices. However, we're learning increasingly in the late year, recent years that this is going on anyway, illegally, which is called corruption. It's not called lobbying. I'm not surprised anymore. <laughs> yeah, I don't mm-hmm. think anyone in America is surprised anymore about all the corruption that we have. But mm-hmm. uh, this is not actually a thing where um, we're able to technically lobby. So what is supposed to have happened with the Sackett decision uh, is lawyers go and make their case to the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court makes a decision based on what is lawful and what precedent 
says. So the Sackett decision is supposed to have been made by the Supreme Court on the basis of what existing laws would allow the federal government to oversee this land or not. And obviously, someone made the case successfully on behalf of some wealthy vested interests or some wealthy corporate interests that this land should not be regulated by the federal government. Um, uh, This reminds me of some there. I think it was in 2022 in the summer around June. Um, China came out with the first specialized law on wetland protection. Hold on, I'll find the document. I would love to learn more about that because maybe we Americans can learn something from what you've done. So this is from, it came out on June 1st, 2022, uh, China's new law on wetlands protection, which starts taking effect on June 1st. The law restricts construction projects in important national wetlands Mm. and bans all harmful behaviors, including overgrazing, overharvesting, and the discharge of wastewater and land reclamation Mm. on the wetlands. And human activities such as tourism, planting, animal husbandry, Mm -hmm. agriculture, and shipping in wetlands must also be undertaken with care to minimize adverse impact. Mm. So, you know, in, um, let's say in the last decade, we didn't really hear much about wetlands. I mean, it's kind of boring, you know, like it just does not come up in the news. Mm. Um, so all of a sudden, there's like a new law protecting wetlands. But I think it's really, really good news. And I remember when uh, California governor, Gavin Newsom, when he came to visit in China um, a few months ago. Do you remember him visiting one of the wetlands areas? I don't remember that specifically. No, I don't think I read about that. Yeah, and like a... A crane or some kind of like long leg birds um, flew to the group and wow. he actually like petted it. Wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was one of the stops um, on his trips to, mm. uh, you know, enjoy this the beauty of this natural reserve area. Mm. Um, so and also, according to this law, the value of wetland resources will be taken into account when deciding on punishments, Uh-oh. and the standards are much more severe than before. So anyone, according to this law, anyone who damages important national level wetlands by enclosing them for cultivation mm-hmm. or for land reclamation mm-hmm. will be fined up to 10,000 yuan, which is like $1,500 per square meter. Oh, wow. That's expensive, like per square meter. And they are required to restore the damaged area within a fixed period of time. So mm. they are pretty serious about this. And wetlands will be classified into national, provincial, so like state in the U.S., mm-hmm. and normal levels of importance. And um, so all this serves to improve uh, wetland management system, mm. right, by clarifying the responsibilities of authorities. So anything bad happens, they will know which, um, like, official to blame and uh, the punishments uh, accor- and punish them accordingly. Wow. That- so, yeah, the uh, China is getting more serious about protecting its wetlands. And also some numbers here. So in 2022, the national wetland protection rate exceeds 50 percent up from like 43% in 2015. Mm -hmm. And China has designated 64 wetlands of international importance, 29 wetlands of uh, national importance, and set up more than 600 wetland natural reserves and about 1,600 wetland parks. Would you be interested in visiting wetland parks? I keep thinking of like mosquitoes and dragonflies. <laughs> there is, <laughs> well, there is a famous picture. I'm not sure where it's from, but it's a, a lot of tourists go get in these boats and they mm. go around in the marshes in these huge green marshes with trees in them. Mm-hmm. It looks a lot like American wetlands that I'm, I'm familiar with in the South mm-hmm. and from TV and movies and things. And so I would be interested in going there. I'm certain there's going to be mosquitoes, oh, but like. You know. Bird watchers, um, wetlands are real. Wetlands are really important because they are uh, crucial stopovers for many species of like migratory birds. And mm. besides birds, they support a really high level of biodiversity. So mm. you know the planet is just not just ours. And I think a lot of hu- humans so we tend to think that we are the dominant species. That we have made ourselves the dominant species. That but there are so many other lives 
that we're sharing this planet with. Uh, I think a lot of times we overlook that. Um, well, I'm anyhow. always startled when some scientists tell us that ants outweigh humans like 600 to 1. I'm just like, <laughs> let's not go to war with the ants then. <laughs> no, let's not. Seriously. We'll be eaten alive. Yeah. Let's give them. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. I have another article here, and I think it's interesting because I think it's misleading. It's just the title anyways, because I, I I got to the article and I was like, oh, this sounds really interesting. And then it turns out like everything about it is the opposite of what the title says. So it's by Nicole Pollock, December 31st, 2023. I got it on MSN.com, but I think it comes from somewhere else. And it's the fruit that is reviving America's wetlands. And it's about cranberry growers, but it's not about how cran- – I thought it was going to be – you know, the title sounds like growing cranberries equals better wetland protection. That's what it sounds like to me. But in fact, the article says the opposite, that there are these fifth and sixth generation families in America who've been growing cranberries forever, for more than a century. And a lot of them are giving up growing cranberries to turn the land back into healthy wetlands. Because to cultivate the cranberries, a lot of uh, diverse species were limited, you know, they right. were cut back so that more cranberries could be installed. Mm-hmm. And now that there are these vast conservation efforts under underway to ring back in some of the original species or let them grow more wild and and cut back on some of the surplus production. And also, apparently, the value of cranberries has decreased, which is encouraging uh, some of the contemporary farmers to allow universities and other ecological institutions to reclaim some of that land for the environment environmentalism. So I think it's really interesting. It's a great article. I'm not complaining, but I think the title definitely tells a different story than the article itself. And also, I remember from reading somewhere that to grow the cranberries, you have to add sand to the land. Mm. Like it wasn't, uh, it, it's like if the land was a natural wetland. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you will need or artificially uh, bring more sand onto the land, mm-hmm. which is not good for like other species. But I mean, I don't know the science behind it, but um, too much of that actually kind of will take nature away from the land. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's one of the reason why they're trying to you know, bring nature back to nature, mm-hmm. let biodiversity come back to wide areas of land that's only catered to growing cranberry itself. I mean, like, you know, most people in China don't really eat cranberry, so we're not as familiar with this kind of <laughs> fruit, but it's very popular in the States, I know. Yeah. Well, you know, I think... Too sour. <laughs> we have these two terms that you and I have explored together. There's reforestation and there's afforestation. So I think the most popular that most people know about is afforestation, where China's gone into deserts and literally planted new forests to help edge in the deserts and prevent them from expanding. And so this is very exciting international. Nationally and But there's another thing that China is also doing, and that is allowing old forest growth to return in some areas in these national parks. And we're not talking about wetlands here. We're just talking about forest. Mm-hmm. So these forests that have been cut back for agricultural use, in some cases, the, the land is given, given back to nature to just run rampant and do what it's supposed to do and let the animals and the, and the, and the natural forests return. And in some cases, scientists have helped it along by replanting some of the local species, which is, I think is really interesting. And it's also, you know, if we can re uh, develop wetlands like these cranberry farmers are, mm-hmm. and China is also allowing a lot of these national parks to reclaim farmland for, you know, natural historic forests that have been there. That gives us hope that, you know, some of the damage that humans have been doing all around the world and different countries everywhere can be kind of undone over time by being better, you know, caretakers for our environment. And being, in some cases, being better caretakers for our environment means keeping people out, (laughs) you know? Exactly. Yeah. Let's just not do that much in a way. Um, I remember maybe it was in one of the cranberry articles. Um, So the cranberry fields were uh, were turned into like reserve areas. So the cranberry fields were turned into reserve areas. Well, it's actually, you know, the same uh, similar to methods of farming. 
you know how like after years of farming, the land is just like it has been sucked out of its uh, nutrients, right? Yeah. So plants won't grow as yeah. well. And especially with like one kind of plant, like acres and acres of the mm. same thing. Like corn and nothing else, mm. and there's nothing else to make up for the loss of the soil. Because back then, and this is from reading Omnivore's Dilemma, uh, in the like old times before like fertile artificial chemical fertilizer, um, after growing corn, I think they grow three seasons of corn every five years, for example, and then the other uh, years and seasons they just the land has to go. What's the word? Fallow. Is, isn't that a word like that? You just let it rest. That's right. right? Yeah. And yes. And also you can grow mm -hmm. like beans or legumes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. It right. replenishes the necessary uh, nitrogen um, that other plants would need. So we don't need too much nitrogen, mm -hmm. but we also need some nitrogen, right? For other plants to grow. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the chemical fertilizers we use, is just way too much. It's like we are poisoned mm -hmm. by the chemical fertilizers. Mm -hmm. So I think you're, you know, talking about similar things. Let's just get out of there. Basically it's saying we don't need to do too much, right? As you mentioned, the prices, uh, for cranberry, has fallen so that it's not profitable to plant them anymore. It's actually the same case for, for corn. Like farmers are not making money from growing corn. They're being subsidized. Mm. They make money from government subsidy. Mm -hmm. Like economically, it does not make sense to grow more corn. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's a whole complicated um, issue. It's just like related. That would be a fun future topic to discuss about why countries subsidize agriculture. That'd be an interesting topic. Yeah, that's true. Um, and also, I want to squeeze in here a few more reasons why we should care about wetlands. They also work to improve. So wetlands also work to improve water quality, which is uh, good for all all of us, mm. they can capture, as mentioned, capture yeah. runoff, surface runoff from cities and farmlands, and they work as natural water filters. They trap mm. excess nutrients, right, as we mentioned, that otherwise may create dead zones in lakes and bays. Mm. Maybe the amount of nitrogen would just all of a sudden will grow to such excess that only like algae and other mm. very few things can grow, can stand that mm. kind of intensity. And also wetlands can help remove other yeah. pollutants and trap suspended sediments mm -hmm. that cloud water bodies. And which can, you know, kill other aquatic mm. plants and animals. And also um, because wetlands are often low laying areas of the landscape, they can restore mm -hmm. and then slowly release surface water. So it, it works as like a buffer zone and it's uh, it can be extremely important for reducing the impacts of flooding. Imagine all that water, right, mm. coming at once. It would be really great if there is an area of like wetlands to moderate that a little bit. And also in some places, water mm -hmm. entering wetlands can also recharge groundwater aquifers um, that are important for irrigation mm. and drinking water. And this and these will be filtered water, too. And also um, carbon sinks. So wetlands also act as important carbon sinks. Mm -hmm. As wetland plants grow, they remove carbon. So as plants grow on the wet, on wetlands, they remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. We're familiar with that mm -hmm. part. And then when they die, they sink slowly to the bottom of the wetland and decompose very, very slowly. So over time, the carbon they contain accumulates in wetland soils mm. where it can be stored for hundreds of years. Conserving and restoring wetlands um, serves as an important strategy for regulating greenhouse gases mm. and mitigating the impacts of climate change. So it's actually a really cheap way of uh, combating climate change. You know, we spend a lot of money thinking up new ways, like new technology of um, dealing with climate change. If we just like let certain places rest, like let nature do its own thing, yeah. especially, you know, in the wetlands, then things will find its own equilibrium. And maybe we don't have to rush around, rush around as much thinking of new ways to do this and that. Mm -hmm. Right. Just let nature do its deal. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge.
I wanted to ask you a question that you've answered before on our show, but I think it's uh, pertinent now because the the extension of the river chief system to the wetlands. So one thing I've noticed in my uh, 11 years here in Beijing is that the canals and the waterways, in fact, in all reality, 10 years ago, were not particularly healthy. Mm -hmm. But as I walk around Beijing recently a lot, I've been walking like 20,000 steps a day. I'm walking over canals Mm -hmm. and waterways that I used to cross over and I I wouldn't have touched that water 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And now there, it is crystal clear. It is like crystal clear and their plant life growing and like surrounded by flowers and it's so well kept. What happened in the last 10 years to transform the waterways in Beijing and I'm assuming in a lot of other places in China as well from where they were 10 years ago to where they are now? Well, you mentioned the river chief system. I remember reading about that too. It's like you are um, delegating the responsibility of protecting certain rivers down to one person. Uh, it might be, I'm not too sure about the details, but, it, you know, uh, uh, official in that particular local area. <laughs> I remember reading articles about like the uh, the official all of a sudden started the habit of like taking walks along uh, the canal or the river in their uh, local mm. like city or county just to make sure that, you know, the river is clean. And do you remember, I think it was a last year, uh, I think it was last year, uh, the news about What's the name of that river in Chaoyang? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't. I know what you're talking about. By Solana, uh, Liangma, Liangma River, Liangmaha. Yeah, yeah, Liangma River, and yeah, exactly. Now you can like uh, take boat rides mm. on it. Um, years ago, I do remember because I we go to one of the malls uh, around mm. that area. It's a very popular area. We take our daughter there. Um, there's like a ice rink in the summer and the water yeah. fountain um, during the other seasons. And the river is right outside this shopping mall area. Uh, a few years ago, like sometimes when we walk by, it would stink a little. <laughs> and I've never seen at, at that time. I had never seen like boats on it. Yeah. And I think it was just last year or the year before. They say like a new route has opened up for boat sightseeing. Hmm. And that's so nice. I don't know like the whole course of the river, like where it does go. But mm-hmm. it was nice near wherever we go now, like to that hmm. and near that. Um, shopping mall area. So I think once you start paying attention and you understand why certain things are important, like protecting our river system and protecting wetlands, once you know the reasons behind it, it's so much easier to start taking actions Mm. because it's all interrelated. Mm. You know, it has impact on our lives. It's our water, right? When we talk about when we talk about ocean, the health of ocean, it's actually what we breathe. Mm-hmm. It's not just water that's like thousands of miles away from us. Mm-hmm. It's in the air. It's the water we drink. Mm. So uh, I think we have to understand that important. And by the way, I read somewhere that since the 1970s, more than a third of global wetlands have disappeared. Oh, wow. So hopefully... Um, it's not too late for us to recover some of that wetlands. I mean, like how much cranberries can humans eat, <laughs> right? Or other plants uh, that we grow. Sure. Why don't we just return some of that to its natural state? Yeah. I mean, we, we're focused on the United States and China specifically here. But, you know, these are two countries out of 200 countries. So there's a lot of other places that we need to also be paying attention to. And I'm sure that it's more difficult for poor, more you know, developing countries to deal with these things when they're dealing with things like trying to get electricity to the, all their citizens and things. So it's easier for us in the more developed world to deal with these problems. But I think in general, in less developed countries, they do less damage to uh, the environment um, than more industrialized nations. And they waste less. I, I think so- you might be surprised. I think you're actually you, – you might be surprised because even though it se- seems like that, oftentimes – for example, let me give you an example. In 2018 or 2019, China passed a law forbidding the importation of – uh, recycled material or materials that needed to be recycled plastics from other countries. So what those countries did is they needed to continue to export these low quality plastic materials often case in, and oftentimes they could not 
be recycled. They were unrecyclable. They were just basically trash. And so instead of shipping them to China, they began diversifying who they're shipping to, to other Southeast Asian nations and African nations. So sometimes these uh, underdeveloped nations, while they their particular living habits have a low impact on the environment, decisions made by some of the leaders in these countries can be adver- bad for the environment because they import mm. things like, you know, um, computer parts that should be very carefully processed by extremely complex m- means, but then they just dump them somewhere. And so well, like batteries, yeah, batteries, just old computer goods too. There's tons of places where uh, fast fashion are just dumped all over the land everywhere and it's destroying the environment. Yes, I agree with you that poorer people do less impact to the environment because they're consuming less processed goods. But oftentimes the advanced countries like the United States and Canada and whatnot are shipping their unwanted debris to the developing world. Right. Oh, speaking of other countries, um, here's an article from weforum.org. I think this article is about Britain. um, It's titled Britain's First Wetland Super Reserve offers boost to nature-based solutions to climate change. Mm. So according to this article, wetlands are the superheroes of the natural world. The first time I heard that Mm. because they are crammed with wildlife and they protect our coastlines and keep our rivers clean and store climate changing amounts of carbon. And they do it quietly, right, without publicizing itself. So we don't know about it. Um, and also the article mentioned how in recent years, so a lot of public campaigns and money have been dedicated to tree planting and re- reforestation. But hardly a mention was given to restoring UK's bogs and swamps and marshes. And somehow I think UK has lots of that. (laughs) I don't know, maybe through like films and pictures I've seen. So um, they're not like stunning sites, but they're important to the ecological Mm -hmm. balance. But things are changing now, the article says. It was um, so recently there's the announcement of a 15,000 acre Somerset Wetlands Natural Mm. Nature Reserve. And this is the UK's second so-called super reserve. And these areas are estimated to contain around 11 million tons of carbon in the form mm-hmm. of peat, mm-hmm. we mentioned, which are semi-decomposed de- semi debt plant materials. Not something that we would, <laughs> you know, we feel is lovely, but it's, it's important it for the environment. And when the peat... Oh, yeah. You think so? Okay, well, Jason has unique <laughs> taste. <laughs> but actually, anything in nature, I think everything in nature mm. is beautiful in its own way. So when the peat lands dry out, um, the vegetation decomposes a lot faster, releasing carbon into the atmosphere. So it's good that they remain kind of wet, right? So the carbon does not get released into, mm-hmm. into the atmosphere. And much of Somerset's peat deposits have been damaged over the centuries and continue to be so. So this would release hundreds of thousands of tons of greenhouse gases every year. And, that, and their protection as carbon sequestering uh, powerhouses is essential if UK wants to hit its like zero uh, goals in yeah. the coming decades, like net carbon goals. So the word it uses to describe it is carbon mm. sequestering greenhouse. And I had to look it up. Right? Sequestering yeah. means to like uh, separate this from something else. Mm. Yeah, to like contain all the carbon that uh, we don't need. And the salt marshes on the edge of the new reserve are also carbon dense habitats and can protect the coastline during storms and sea level rises. So, you know, listening to this particular episode and also doing the episode ourselves, if there's one thing we had, we can have an impression of is that wetlands are really important for us, for all of our uh, countries to have, you mm. know, natural wetland areas. Well, I, you know, I, 
That's interesting. I also have an article. It's from The Guardian. It's uh, December 26, 2023, and it's about Spain, and they're doing something very similar with 320,000 acres, where a UNESCO-listed national park is mm. doing something quite similar to what you've talked about, where they're also you know, uh, protecting a set of both marshes, forests, and dunes, which stretch across 130,000 hectares. So it looks like a lot of the places around the world are starting to take these. You know, I think a lot of this stuff comes from like the cops waking up the United Nations and other Mm -hmm. international institutions. People are getting together and dealing with this on a global scale. Because if it was just up to one country, they might just do whatever. It's like, oh, Mm. we're just doing whatever we want to do. Maybe they're doing it over there. But when everyone is pressuring each other to all move forward together, then it seems like we can accomplish a lot more. Like if you, if people Mm -hmm. who've noticed that China has added 52% as much uh, solar this year as its entire history. And now China has, Mm. uh, during the year 2023, as much renewable capacity as the rest of the world had up until 2022. But a lot of the rest of the world is now buying Chinese solar, is also mm-hmm. producing it domestically. And so we have all this push towards renewables. So it seems like the world is coming together to protect, you know, all kinds of different varied ecosystems. And fortunately, you know, for you and me, what a month ago, we didn't know much about. I'm assuming you didn't know much about this either, about wetlands. I certainly didn't know anything. But (laughs) fortunately, there are people out there who are aware of these things. And they're having meetings, discussions, and they're, they're, exactly. you you know, you protect this park, we'll protect that park. And they're nations putting money into it. Yeah, it's, it's, it is, it looks. Be specific. Like, some people are mm-hmm. trying. Will we be able to correct it all? I don't know. I don't know well, I think one thing um, I got from today's show is that to understand that mm-hmm. protecting the environment and also combating uh, climate change doesn't always mean we need like frontier technology or new innovation. Mm-hmm. These are great, mm-hmm. right? They have their purposes. But at the same time, um, you know, according to this article, the best and cheapest way to harness nature for fighting climate change is to protect and restore the world's wetlands. That's it. Just like Mm. let them, you know, go back to the natural state they want to be. The bogs and lakes, mangroves, mires, peatlands, rivers, and tidal mudflats, floodplain marshes, just leave them alone. If you don't want, you don't think it's a beautiful site, don't go there, right? All the better. (laughs) And you don't think it's a great business um, location. Well, great. Don't build a hotel there, right? Let it rest. Let them do their (laughs) own thing, right? They're like, as they say, like Amazon, the lungs of the world, and then wetlands as the kidney of the world. Let them do their job, right? Sometimes I think the best thing to do is just to leave things alone, to return to their natural state. And it's cheap. Right. Isn't that the cheapest way to do this? Yeah, I agree. Well, I think that I'm guessing in my own, you know, I think you're right. But I also want to supplement that with some additional stuff. Like I think the world, the earth Mm -hmm. has been around for, you know, with life on it for 5 billion years. And it has reached like its own kind of stasis and how to protect itself. And if you leave like an area alone, you know, if you if I just abandoned my neighborhood, all the humans and churching Sean left, this place would be, you know, decimated by nature and in, you know, a, a century. It would just just look like a bunch of nature because mm. it, you know, nature has a way of just taking over everything right. again. So yeah, leaving, leaving an area, humans leaving an area and stop messing with it oftentimes helps it return to nature. Mm. I'm guessing as we humans start to be- become better stewards of our world, it may take centuries to undo some of the damage and it may take technology to do so. Mm. For example, and I don't mean to be, you know, uh, highlight something extreme, but all of the radiation that that's being dumped into the oceans right now mm. by uh, people in Fukushima. That's not just going to naturally go away. We might have to, you know, do something about undoing the damage that's currently being done to our environment because mm. you know those radioactive isotopes aren't just going to disappear unless we wait like you know tens of thousands of years right so it does seem like maybe some you know when you have an oil spill you can't just leave it there that's mm. why we send in all these uh, scientists who put like mushrooms on it and stuff because some kinds of algae and mushrooms can eat 
the oil up huh. and prevent uh, uh, some of the damage that we humans have done to that area. Mm. So I agree with you. Yes. Oftentimes it just takes us stepping back and saying, let that rainforest be, let those wetlands be. But I also think that we are doing so much damage to our environment that we may need to undo some of the damage that we've done in some cases. I agree, Jason. Thank you. Well, thank you for selecting this topic or otherwise I'll probably never think about talking about wetlands. And also just uh, <laughs> before we wrap up, I do recommend again to our listeners uh, this great novel. If you have like a few days of a holiday, you can read it over the weekend um, where the crawl dad sing. And also the other book that I mentioned, I recommend to everybody is The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan. This book will tell you more about what we're actually eating in uh, the industrial age. I think we'll all be kind of shocked. Um, like corn is not really corn anymore and chicken nuggets are not made of chicken uh, anymore. So I think these are enlightening books to read. Well, I mean, we still have a little bit of time. I wanted to go over another article here. This is, oh, okay, yeah, good. This is from uh, this year. January 2nd, and it says, study reveals marsh wetlands response to climate change in Qinghai Tibetan Plateau. So scientists from the Northeast Institute of Geography and Agroecology of the Chinese Academy of Scientists, <laughs> wow, uh, was uh, recently published in uh, Global Change Biology. And it basically says that 20% of China's wetlands, in, which are in the Qinghai Tibetan uh, Plateau, play a critical role in the the regional carbon cycle. I, this came up in a conversation weirdly. Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know what kind of conversations I'm having. I was, I was meeting some people here in Beijing and they brought this mm. up. Be, I guess they had also read about it. It turns out that the Qinghai Tibetan Plateau and some of the wetlands there are only recently being discovered by Chinese scientists, by the Chinese government, as more critical to the local ecology in Asia mm. than had hitherto been understood. And I mm. think that might be why there is a, an increased push towards protecting wetlands this year. Mm -hmm. That There's probably going to be, you know, you mentioned that there are a lot of uh, new areas that have last year that have been rolled out to be protected by the government. But I think that that is going to increase significantly in the next year or two based on mm. recent findings by some of uh, China's first-rate scientists. And so the increasing knowledge of about the importance of protecting our environment is leading to increased change in the government's understanding of mm. the necessity to protect it. Like times like this make me feel like I'm really thankful yeah. uh, for for knowledge, right? It really let lead us closer to finding out the reality, yeah. like how we are supposed to live. Um, that's not just good for us, uh, but also good for everyone else, other species and other plants and just uh, the, the universe in general. So, yeah, thanks. You know, hats off to our scientists. And the, when they do their research, um, they have to fight off, I guess, all kinds of bugs and mosquitoes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. But it's, well, you know, they they chose this way of life. I'm, I'm mm. assuming they like it out there with their net it's around their head or whatever. Yeah, it's rewarding in its own way. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you so much for your time, baby. Thank you for your time, listeners. Thank you, Jason. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh, yeah.